Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the implant that turns thoughts into text. And what craftspeople can teach scientists about materials. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs, are, as the name suggests, interfaces between the brain and a computer. They can read electrical signals in the brain and translate those signals, via an algorithm, into computer actions like moving a cursor or typing. This week, researcher Frank Willett from Stanford University and his team have demonstrated a faster way to use BCIs for writing, which could allow people who've been paralysed to communicate more efficiently. They recruited a volunteer who couldn't move his hand due to paralysis and then asked him to imagine writing with a pen. The algorithm was trained on his brain patterns while he thought about writing. And after a while, he was able to type text on a computer screen with impressive speed. I called Frank and started by asking him how brain-computer interfaces work. So BCI works by recording the neural activity in some way. So here it was recorded with an implanted array of electrodes. Then there's some algorithm that finds the relevant patterns in that activity and translates it. And what kind of routes have people tried to develop so far in in trying to translate brain signals into written text? And how did your approach differ? Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different approaches. I mean, the one that was most on our minds was this point-and-click method, which we think was the prior best, where you're you're moving this computer cursor on a screen to each key that you want to hit, and you click on that key, and it types that letter. So this is is different from that. So instead of you know moving a single cursor from key to key, instead you're trying to handwrite something. You're just quickly trying to write these string of letters, and we show that on the screen. And how does that work? Yeah, it's well, that, that's the magic. That's the secret sauce of the algorithm, <laughs> and that's basically just pattern recognition. So it's just looking at the patterns of 
neural activity and it's, you know, it's remembering, it knows what kind of pattern is associated with each letter. And then when it sees that in the neural recordings, it types that letter out. So the neurons that are firing in my head now when I try and handwrite something, if I then subsequently become paralyzed, those same neurons are still firing. The patterns are still there for you to observe. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it does sound incredibly complicated because it, it sounds like you would need to know the inner workings of the brain, you know, this like in-depth neuroscientific understanding. But actually, you're kind of uh, avoiding that by using pattern recognition. So is that like a machine learning system? Yeah, exactly. It, it just learns based on having seen it many times before. So that's part of the calibration process where we collect data of the participant trying to write all of these different letters multiple times. And then the algorithm is able to then, you know, through those many repetitions, kind of form an image of what each one looks like. So you've so far tried this out on one participant and they've basically had to do a load of training to show a computer what trying to write A looks like and B. So at the moment, it's personalized to their brain. Definitely in the future, we want to look towards ways of making that process a lot faster. And we also hope that, you know, when we translate this to additional people, we'll be able to leverage that so it won't take as long on those additional people, right? There'll be some shared structure. And there's a video online of this actually working. So comparing your participant using your new handwriting-based BCI system compared to a previous method. And the, the cursor method is, is, is very impressive, but it's relatively slow. So I can see them moving the cursor around to Y-O-U space M, whereas... Your participant here, it's more like Y-O-U space M-U-S-T. It's it's noticeably and impressively faster. What's the comparison there? The original point-and-click typing device peaked at around 40 characters per minute, whereas this new method does 90 characters per minute. So 90 characters per minute is about 18 words per minute, which is kind of exciting because it starts to get into the range that's maybe comparable to normal handwriting speeds, or in this case, um, kind of comparable to how you would type on a smartphone. So the technology that you're using of implanting an electrode array into the brain, then communicating that, that's kind of the same as what's been done previously. But the novelty is then using handwriting. So what's been the benefit of that? The reason why we think that handwriting was much more effective than the point-and-click cursor movements because when you try to handwrite each different character, that evokes a very different pattern of neural activity for each character, which is great for, for BCIs because that makes things easy to distinguish in the neural activity. You know, when you're doing like a point-and-click cursor, right, when you're going to nearby keys, that evokes very similar patterns. And given that at the moment it does require quite a lot of setup, um, is this going to be widely usable? I mean, obviously we hope that, yeah, it can one day be turned into a product that anyone who has severe paralysis who can't speak or communicate could get something like this implanted. I think in the future you could imagine if things really you know, develop along really nicely, maybe this could be part of a general purpose device that lets you control a computer. So even if you're, let's say you're spinal cord injured and you can move your head and face and still talk, well, maybe this could be part of a general device that lets you 
type on a computer and click things more easily. So what is the next step now for you in this research? Yeah, well, with the handwriting stuff, I think one big theme that emerged for future work is kind of making it much more streamlined for, for practical use. And in particular, um, the calibration times, making that faster. Then also, similarly, like when things change across days. So sometimes you get different patterns of neural activity on different days because the implant device maybe moves around a little bit so you record from different neurons. And so instead of having to retrain it every day, it would be great if instead you were able to seamlessly in the background kind of keep track of these changes. So basically minimizing this training time and making it more streamlined. That was Frank Willett from Stanford University. Head over to the show notes where you can find a link to Frank's paper and the video I described of the system in action. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing how a scientist's journey into craft helps shape her materials research. Right now, Noah Baker is here with this week's research highlights. Flatworms can see where they're going without a head, thanks to light-sensitive cells throughout their bodies. Like most animals, flatworms have eyes that respond to light, but previous research has suggested that the worms don't rely entirely on their eyes to see. To test the theory, researchers cut the heads of a type of freshwater-dwelling flatworm that's able to survive in its decapitated state. Then they exposed the worms' bodies to ultraviolet light and watched as they turned away, moving away from the light just like intact worms do. By looking at gene expression throughout the animal's tissue, the researchers found that the flatworms' bodies are lined with networks of light-sensitive cells that coordinate this kind of movement. These cells contained a new type of light-sensitive protein, which was also found in pigment cells in the worm. Newly hatched worms don't have this light-sensing ability, suggesting that it develops in adulthood. The researchers suggest that because flatworms are nocturnal, the system evolved to help them quickly hide from the sun, even if they're resting and not using their eyes or brains. You can read more about that study in the Proceedings in the National Academy of Sciences USA. How itchy would you say you were? It's a tough thing to quantify, and yet now a new wearable device knows the answer precisely. Atopic dermatitis, also known as eczema, causes chronic itching. It can be so severe in children that they scratch their itchy skin at night instead of sleeping, leading to stunted growth. Treatments do exist to reduce this nocturnal itching, but until now the only reliable method to measure their effectiveness was time-consuming analysis of infrared camera recordings. But now researchers have developed a sensor which can be worn on the back of a child's hand. It uses acoustic and mechanical signals to measure scratches initiated from the arm, wrist, fingers and fingertips. By wiring up healthy volunteers, the researchers trained the sensor to detect which movements constitute scratching and which don't. Then they tested the device in 11 children with moderate to severe eczema over many nights. When compared to the infrared camera method, the sensor performed well, correctly identifying 84% of scratching movements and 99% of non-scratching movements. The researchers hope their device could provide a new way to help tackle this common condition. Read more in Science Advances. Have you ever wondered why phone screens are made of glass when it is so breakable? 
Or why porcelain and terracotta start life as similar lumps, but one ends up as fine china and the other as heavy-duty plant pots? Material scientist Anna Poshysky realised that despite all her hours in the lab with glass instruments in her hands, there were major cracks in her understanding of that material and many others. In her new book, Handmade, she spoke to ten artisans, makers and craftspeople about the materials they know and love. Our reporter, Lorna Stewart, spoke to Anna from her London home. So it all started um, about four years ago when I experienced this sort of crushing realisation that although I was trained in material science and I knew all of the theories and formulae behind materials and how they um, sort of exist and operate in the world on paper, I realised that I knew nothing really about how they behave in the sort of real handmade world. You know, I'd never sort of forged an iron bar in a blacksmith's workshop or thrown a pot on the potter's wheel. And so that's what I wanted to explore in this book is this world of handmaking and craft and sort of rediscovering materials through that. You were super hands-on for the book, so trying all kinds of crafts like you've mentioned, glass blowing, blacksmithing, pottery and even wool tasting. And I think we should start by talking about wool tasting. <laughs> so wool tasting um, was an experience that I did at a wool shop called Wild and Woolly up in um, <laughs> North London in Clapton. And it was... It was it very much appealed to me as a material scientist, actually, because we were presented with an egg box full of six different wools that were unnamed. And we had to sort of knit up a small sort of swatch of them and sort of experience how they behaved underhand and, you know, the different qualities to them. Um, And listeners who aren't knitters might be surprised to hear that there are all sorts of different qualities to wool. But there really are. You can have sort of different plies. Um, Some of them were shiny. Some of them were very matte. Some of them had bits of hair sort of sticking out of them at weird angles. Um, So some really sort of big personalities in, in this. Um, collection of wools and then at the end of the session we were sort of introduced to exactly the type of sheep that they came from what the breed were like um, and what sort of you know objects you could you could expect to knit from these wools so that was wool tasting (laughs) what does feeling the wool and understanding all those characteristics tell a material scientist about about the structure of it or about the properties of Mm. it that you wouldn't know. So this is what was really fascinating to me because wool is not a material that we study in material science. So it was a complete sort of new new substance for me and as I was writing the book and looking into you know what is wool how is it constructed I discovered that it's it's obviously made of atoms and, and these atoms are sort of configured into amino acids at the very sort of smallest levels and then these are sort of twisted round not only down their own lengths but also round each other so they form these sort of coiled ropes and the the coiledness of those tiny 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 atomic ropes um, is what gives wool its stretchiness at the kind of human scale that we interact with it um, and it's kind of wrinkle recovery and so that that was an example of a property that, you know, has its origins in atomic structures, which is my comfort zone, but is looked for by knitters and craftspeople as um, a property for the materials that they want to work with. So that was a really delightful kind of crossover, really, um, of the science that I was comfortable with, with the craft side. I mean, it's so interesting to me, you, you talk there about how the wool is made, how it's how it's spun together and twisted together. And a lot of what you went and did was making things you know glass blowing blacksmithing pottery 
when I think of material science, there's so much about breaking things, I suppose. <laughs> so true. How was it to sit down as somebody who's normally breaking and make instead? Yeah, it was a whole new experience for me. And um, at the start of the book, I talk about my my sort of lifelong reluctance to really get crafty and get hands-on and make things. But then as I went through the materials and gained confidence in using my hands to make with them and it's, I suppose, learning the process of thinking about making, if that makes sense. So the things I would learn from craftspeople were the skills, but then observing their approach to applying those skills to the materials really did increase my confidence, I suppose, in terms of being able to make these really quite simple objects. Now I feel, I do feel like a crafter and, you know, able to make things that people actually seem to genuinely appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Were you able to teach any of the artisans something about material science that they didn't know? I wouldn't go so far as to think that I would be able to teach them, I don't think, because if we take the example of the blacksmith, Agnes Jones, who I met, Mm. um, we had a go at blacksmithing in her forge. You know, she is able to tell the temperature of her steels just by looking at them and the colour that they incandesce at. (laughs) Um, And although... Although I don't think she would necessarily know, you know, the atomic origins of the incandescence and, you know, why hot atoms give off electromagnetic waves in the visible spectrum and all the stuff that I (laughs) would know about. um, To her, I don't think those that atomic explanation is what's important when you're blacksmithing. So although, yeah, you know, I suppose I was able to kind of provide that information, I wouldn't say that. For me, that's kind of an awkward hierarchy because I wasn't trying to teach them anything. I was trying to learn from them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Do you, do you feel like you're going to reshape your academic practice in light of all the things that you've learned? Yeah. So at the time that I was writing the book, I was doing a postdoc research in 4D printing and 4D materials. So sort of substances that move in reaction to their environment when you 3D print with them. And yeah, I did I did start applying what I'd learned in the world of craft to that research. For example, I was wanting to start 3D printing onto sort of pre-existing textiles and fabrics. And so, you know, I got my microscope out and I looked at these textiles under the microscope and I noticed familiar knitted constructions that I'd been, you know, knitting with and knitting blankets with. Um, in these textiles and so then I could understand their mechanical properties and how to manipulate those in my experiments so yeah it definitely did influence my research direction yeah it's a cliche that maths geniuses sort of see numbers everywhere (laughs) I wondered whether you see atoms and structures everywhere when you look at materials you know do you look at cake and see the structure (laughs) of sugar how do material scientists how do you as a material scientist view the world yeah I think how I view the world has changed throughout the process of writing this book because at the start I would go about the world and yeah see atomic structures and things but now having had my eyes open to the world of craft through this book I look through you know the eyes of 10 different craftspeople with with 10 different areas of expertise and through looking through their lenses I think I have gained an appreciation for for how our world is made, not just how it's made by atoms, but how it's made by people's hands. Anna Pasiajski there. Head over to the show notes where you can find a link to Nature's review of her book. 
Time now for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of stories highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Ben, what have we got this week? Well, Sharmini, I've got a story, a microbiology story that was reported in Nature. But let's start, as we often do in the briefing chat, with a short quiz. Sharmini, tell me about the base pairs in DNA. Ah, okay. I love the quizzes. Base pairs. Okay, there are four base pairs, A, G, T and C. So... G binds with C and A always binds with T. And then that's the code that the DNA is sort of written in. Bingo. I'm very pleased you got that right, to be honest with you, given that we've been hosting a science <laughs> show for, for many, many years. But what's neat about this story is that there are a bunch of viruses that infect bacteria. Now, I'd call them phages. You might call them phages. But let's stick with phages for the time being. So these viruses infect bacteria. But instead of using adenine or A, they use a base called 2-amino adenine or Z. There's a Z base. I've never heard of a Z base. Yeah, so it turns out it's been known about for quite a long time. It was first discovered about 40 years ago. So some scientists in the Soviet Union in the 1970s showed that Z was being used in a phage called S2L that infects photosynthetic bacteria. And for a long time, it wasn't really known whether this was kind of a fluke, if this was a one-off, if this was literally N equals one. So is it just like a weird, maybe a weird mutation in sort of one obscure virus potentially well shamley that is a great question and the answer is it does seem to be pretty widespread but it's taken you know a little while to get to that point so back in the 2000s researchers sequenced the genome of this s2l phage and found a gene that looked like it was involved in making this z base but couldn't find any similar genes in the databases and you know fast forward 10 years or so and some more were found and now there's two papers out in science where two groups have expanded that out and published the genetic pathway that shows how the z base is made and as i say it's pretty widespread it turns out and what does the fact that there's yeah a whole group of phages using a completely different base. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means in the first instance is that hiding in plain sight, I guess, there is a sort of DNA that uses a different system to the one that, you know, you and I learnt at school. And to answer the what is it for, I mean, I think the best guess at the moment is that this kind of non-ATCG DNA maybe protects these phages from some of the mechanisms that bacteria use to break Ooh, them down. That's cool, yeah, that this might not just be a random thing, but there might be some sort of advantage for the phage. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it may be an advantage, and it may be that researchers piggyback that advantage and use it for different things. So the ZT bond is actually stronger than the A T bond in DNA. So it takes more energy to break them apart. So there's talk about maybe this could be used to make more stable DNA molecules when you're trying to, you know, store information, which we know that some researchers are trying to do. It might make DNA fold differently, which could be used in DNA origami, which is being used for a variety of different things. So yeah, people are looking to work out what this means and what could be done with it. Right now, one of the teams involved in one of these papers is looking to try and incorporate this Z DNA system not into a virus, but into a bacterium, so into E. coli, to make that make this kind of different sort of DNA. Well, next time someone asks me about DNA bases, I shall sort of update my knowledge um, and mention Z in there as well. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, a few years ago on the podcast, I covered uh, some researchers who were making synthetic bases, X and Y. So it turns out that this is, you know, a fairly big area of research. And well, I mean, who knows quite where it's going to go, but something I'm sure that we'll keep an eye on. But Shamini, what about you? What have you got this week for the briefing chat? So I've been reading an article in Science this week all about the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster, which was just over 35 years ago. 
But it seems like there are still some sort of ongoing worries and ongoing hazards remaining, even after all this time, at the site of the plant and of the disaster. Well, you're right, Shamley. Disaster is the right word to use. And I I know that a couple of years ago, I think, was a big sort of shell, a big carapace put over the top of the sort of wreckage. Is this related to that in any way? Well, that's still there. The potential risks that might be there are still being contained by that. It was called the new safe confinement. So that's still there sort of keeping everything in. But one of the aims of that big protective structure was to stop rainwater getting in. So after the disaster, there was all this melted nuclear fuel in there and they put a temporary shelter over everything. But rainwater would leak in and it seemed that the rainwater was basically affecting the neutrons and accelerating the fission reactions in this fuel. So basically, there's still kind of nuclear reactions going on in there. Um, This article describes it as a sort of embers in a barbecue pit smouldering. So the new safe confinement was supposed to stop the rain. However, for some reason, the scientists who've been monitoring it have recently seen from a particular point in this building an increase in the number of neutrons, which suggests that fission is once again sort of happening and increasing in there somewhere. I mean, I'm no nuclear physicist, Sharmini, but that doesn't sound too good. I mean, what, what are the researchers saying about this situation? Well, they're quite puzzled by the mechanism by which it's happening because the stopping of the rainwater was supposed to stop exactly this happening. There is a theory that maybe it's the opposite problem. Maybe as the fuel mass is drying out, that's somehow causing this reaction to keep going as well. And there is a chance that it could go critical and it could cause some sort of explosion. Now, this isn't going to be able to break free of the new safe confinement, but the people who are sort of managing this plant and trying to make it all safer absolutely do not want that to happen. They are trying to remove the remains of the original temporary shelter. It's still there, but it's sort of unstable. It's resting on the remains of the original building, which is itself kind of unstable. They don't want that all sort of collapsing down. It would release loads of radioactive dust into the middle of it. So they're keeping quite a close eye on this rising neutron count. So is it just at the moment, keep an eye on it and see where it goes? Yeah. So this isn't like they suddenly noticed this yesterday. This has been slowly increasing. And, you know, they think they have a few years to get this under control. Unfortunately, the particular place where these neutrons are coming from is kind of in a collapsed room. So it's kind of buried under concrete. So it's really hard to get to. And of course, a really unsafe environment. So the one idea that this article mentions is to develop a robot that can you know, withstand the radiation in there that could drill holes and insert boron cylinders. So they would mop up the extra neutrons similar to control rods that you have in a nuclear power plant. Hopefully they will have time to sort of work on these ideas, but they're also being careful to monitor this one and other areas where there's this fuel containing material which could go critical again it's not going to be a sort of huge explosion it will be contained but they definitely don't want even within the new safe confinement any sort of explosion well absolutely right Sharmini, and that's a really really interesting story thank you for bringing it to the briefing chat this week and listeners if you're interested in more stories like this but instead as an email then make sure you check out the nature briefing and we'll put a link in the show notes where you can sign up that's all for this edition of the nature podcast don't forget to follow us on twitter we're at nature podcast and head over there to see a video of the brain computer interface we heard about earlier in the show and also don't forget you can reach out to us on email we're podcast at nature.com i'm benjamin thompson 
and I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.